Welcome to Ideas. I'm Lister Sinclair with the fifth programme in a series by David Cayley called Beyond Institutions. Tonight, a critical look at criminal justice by American criminologist Jerry Miller. The violence, particularly in some of the inner cities, is more a product of law enforcement uh, than law enforcement is a response to the violence. It begins to produce the very thing you claim to be, be treating. But you cannot understand this with the paradigms that are being used in research today. So that uh, when you say these things, people either think you're off your rocker or they don't know what you're talking about. In the United States in 1980, there were half a million people in prisons and jails, a very high proportion by the standards of Canada or other Western countries. In the years since, violent crime in the US by a number of measures has decreased, but today there are nearly a million and a half Americans behind bars. More than half of them are black or Hispanic, and the US is planning for more people in jail. In November, the Senate passed a so-called anti-crime bill which allocates $3 billion for 10 new high-security prisons, $3 billion more for boot camps, and $8.9 billion to hire more police. The bill has already been endorsed by Bill Clinton. The politicians promoting more prisons, more police and stiffer sentences say that crime makes these things necessary. They tell stories about Americans cowering fearfully in their homes, two-year-olds who come to daycare with vials of crack in their pockets, and 13-year-old boys who kill just for the kick of it, this last a quotation from the president himself. Dr. Jerome Miller believes that matters stand precisely the other way around. He thinks that the institutions of criminal justice are often a cause of crime. Dr. Miller has run the juvenile correction systems in Massachusetts and Pennsylvania, and now heads the National Center on Institutions and Alternatives, an organization he founded in 1977. Its purpose is to develop alternatives to institutions for, in the center's own words, for the mentally ill, developmentally disabled, adult and juvenile offenders, the aged, and children. His reflections on what Carl Menninger once called the crime of punishment comprise part five of Beyond Institutions by David Cayley. The failed products of a century and a half's dependence on custodial institutions haunt us. So begins Jerry Miller's book, Last One Over the Wall, the story of how he closed Massachusetts' ten scandal-ridden institutions for delinquent youth and moved all but 40 of the 1,000 kids committed to that system into community-based programs. This was the start of what has so far been a 25-year career in rescuing people from institutions. In the mid-70s, in Pennsylvania, he rescued a 1,000 more youths, this time moving them from adult prisons into community settings. And since then, he has pioneered what are called alternative sentencing proposals. These involve intervening in court with well-researched, well-considered plans which offer judges alternatives to imprisonment. His organization, the National Center on Institutions and Alternatives, has now done more than 10,000 of these. One of the first things that came to Jerry Miller's attention when he took over juvenile corrections in Massachusetts 
was a piece of research done at the Lyman School for Boys, one of the department's institutions. It showed that the longer a boy was in the institution, the more likely he was to reoffend. Miller's own observations confirmed him in the view that punishment breeds crime. Believing this, he has watched in growing alarm over the last 10 years as all the institutions of American criminal justice have grown steadily more punitive and more simplistic in their understanding of crime. The more people are imprisoned, he believes, the more the culture of the prison infiltrates the communities from which the prisoners come. A vicious circle is then created in which prisons generate crime, and this crime then mandates even harsher prisons. In 1993, I visited Jerry Miller at his National Center on Institutions and Alternatives. The center is in Alexandria, Virginia, adjacent, as you will occasionally hear in what follows, to the Washington, D.C. airport. Our conversation ranged over alternative sentencing, the loss of narrative and criminology, and the plight of African-American males in the criminal justice system. It began with the growing influence, strongly evident, for example, in rap music, of prison culture. The talk of the streets is the talk of the prison. I mean, it's, it's prison jargon, it's prison language, it's prison ethics, it's prison norms. We've just succeeded in, in creating this, this society on the street, which is a mirror image of the society we would like to put people in, only it's out on the street. Uh, I don't have any doubt if you were to go to a busy part of uh, the city in D.C., that uh, a poorer part of the city, where there is a fair amount of, of crime and violence that the great majority of people out there will be alumni of this or that prison or juvenile detention center. And not only that, that they will have gone into that system originally for nothing approaching a violent offense. They would have gone in for something relatively minor. And they would have gone in initially primarily because of their socioeconomic status. You know, two-thirds of people awaiting trial in this country that are sitting in jail are there because they have, uh, they do not have $500 in a bondsman. They are there on 5000 or less dollars bond. So it means, by definition, they are poor people. Anyone of minimum means would be out. But uh, so that uh, you get sucked into this system and you, uh, it teaches you some pretty uh, awful lessons. One of the lessons young people growing up in criminalized cultures learn is not to trust anybody. And this mistrust, in Miller's view, is actively fostered by the institutions of criminal justice. These institutions are so obsessed by crime, he says, that they now routinely destroy every decency within the communities they are supposedly protecting. One example that has struck me is the, is the law enforcement uh, uh, now routine technique of, of using informers and of setting people up, uh, sting operations and what have you. That's, that was so easily taken in this country. It began with ABSCAM in Congress, where they set up a number of congressmen 15, 20 years ago, and it, it got great public support. But that sort of thing eats away at the norms of the society. So that you, if you have, as we do now in the city, a situation where you have primarily young African-American males uh, being arrested, about 80 to 90 percent of the drug arrests are of, of this group, even though they're not serious arrests, that's what they're about. 
And uh, so you have that large a percentage of people being brought into the criminal justice system, at least briefly. And then you, uh, you'll overcharge a young man. You'll, although he hasn't done that much, you'll charge him with something that can carry a horrendously long sentence. And then you'll say, but if you'll give me information about who else you know that has dealt drugs or whatever, we'll consider uh, something lesser which they may or may not do. It's very common now for law enforcement in this country to lie through their teeth at every step, and no one says much about it. It's just routine. It's part of the procedure. So you can't plan on those promises. But even if you could, it, it turns a community, particularly a certain age group, into informers. Or those that are not informers, it turns them into a situation where they're concerned that someone might be informing on them. And so you have a very volatile situation. If you look at the, at the prison, for example, as a metaphor for society, I think you'd find that those prisons that have relied on, on informants and snitches to maintain uh, uh, the management of the place are potentially the most violent prisons. Uh, if you look at the Santa Fe riots in this country uh, 10 years or so ago, the most violent, brutal, bloody riot of this century in this country uh, most of it inmate-on-inmate violence. But the warden of that prison used to say to visitors, whenever he saw, say, four or five inmates talking, he'd say to the visitors, I own three of them. Uh, they're mine. I own them. Because the place was run on the basis of snitching. Uh, once the lid breaks on that, uh, the hatred, the anger, the lack of social bonding uh, is, is fantastic. And that's essentially what we've accomplished in the inner city. Uh, you, you have basically a latent prison riot sitting there all the time where no one knows whom to trust at any level. Even childhood buddies are fair game in this if someone gives a bit. And then you throw into that volatile mix handguns, <laughs> willy-nilly. Everybody has handguns. It would be akin to going into a prison run in that fashion and handing out guns and saying, now let's see what happens. No one can trust anyone, everyone for themselves. You have to do what in prison parlance they call fronting. You have to do a lot of that to show that you are your own man, which means you have to show that you can be brutal, that you have no feeling for others, that, uh, and if, if you threaten anyone, you have to deliver in action very soon or you will be a victim. So you don't just mouth off, I'm going to get you someday or I may shoot you. You shoot them or you're going to be the next person. It's like it, we've brought, we've, we've so criminalized and prisonized the inner city that we have brought the prison ethic, the prison culture into the street. Jerry Miller uses the term culture here in its full anthropological sense. He believes that for young African-American males particularly, criminal justice processing has become a puberty right, the available and obvious way of becoming a man. This right may begin on streets already dominated by older prison alumni, or it may be initiated by the police. Between 1987 and 1990, for example, the Los Angeles Police Department and the County Sheriff's Office pulled in 50,000 kids in anti-gang dragnets that consisted of virtually random sweeps through their communities. And once people are in the system, Miller says, certain consequences will inevitably follow. Most people that get involved in the serious crime were not involved early on. There are a few, 
but they would be so small in number and such a small percentage that, that, that it would be negligible in terms of, of the horrendous national statistics we have. But you have a, a society and a structure now that will take relatively naive people, people who are not into crime, and will make them so angry along the way in terms of the handling they see either of themselves or their relatives or their friends and you pound it home day after day after day. Uh, for example, there's no reason police have to do what they do in arresting people uh, routinely now. There's no reason everyone has to be thrown on the ground or humiliated in front of their friends. Uh, it, again, much of it may be related to the lack of, of what used to be authentic community policing, where the policeman walked around and knew the people in the community and they knew him and most of these things could be negotiated and they could talk about an incident with the people involved and involve others and what have you. There's no room for any of that now. P things are handled by the book and they are escalated very quickly. And if you move away from those models, you are considered unpatriotic or a wimp or whatever. There are, there are a few, I think, who have understood this, like Lee Brown, the former police commissioner in New York City, who's a very bright, studied, intelligent, sensitive man. He disbanded the narcotics tactical squads, took great heat for it. Uh, but in fact, after that, crime went down in New York. Inci the number of incidents went down. These, these squads were not going around looking for people to throw on the floor and, and, and make a scene over, over dealing drugs. Uh, you didn't ignore the dealing of drugs, but you do not go in and stimulate these things. You know, most crime in this country, well, a good portion of crime is not reported crime. Most of, most of the arrests are not necessarily in response to a report of a crime. They are in response to a policy that's been implemented by the local police force or the local prosecutor. They will decide to go out and raid or to go out and make this a primary issue, and they will look for it. They will, they'll screen most, you know, they'll set up roadblocks, they'll go into communities, usually minority communities, and start knocking down doors on the basis of information, etc. But they are not on the basis of reports of crime. So that, uh, in a sense, policy is driving much of this. And uh, it comes with its payback. It's become really, in an anthropological sense, for a young African-American male in this country, it's their rite of passage the rite of passage where you become a man in American society is to go to jail, to be arrested in front of your peers, usually handcuffed to your peers, and dragged off at least for a few hours to the jail and humiliated in front of everyone. And then at the, by, the, by the second time, as you know, I've known for years working with young delinquent kids in detention, you learn uh, the strongest who would have the most potential, learn quickly to front, learn quickly to show to their friends, this is no bother at all. I could take this standing up. And it, it builds an attitude. If this were happening to tow-headed white kids in the suburbs, to the degree it's happening in the city, in terms of the police practices, uh, they would be up in arms. I mean, you would be having, uh, they'd be dragging these kids off to therapy after the awful experience they'd had or they, what they'd seen or whatever. Uh, but it's taken as a matter of course when you move into the inner city and no one seems to question it. Studies done by Jerry Miller's National Center on Institutions and Alternatives reveal the extent to which the war on drugs and the war on crime are actually wars on black America. In Baltimore, Maryland, for example, on an average day in 1991, 
56% of all African-American men between ages 18 and 35 were under the supervision of the criminal justice system. That is, they were either in jail, on probation or parole, out on bail, or being sought on an arrest warrant. 56% on one day. And as the number of African-Americans in custody has increased, Miller says, so has the brutality of the system. If you were to look at the statistics from the 1920s, for example, the percentage of African-American males in our prisons nationally in this country was somewhere between 20, 22 percent, something in that range. That's at, and at that time, uh, they, African-Americans in general made up about 11 to 12 percent of our national population. So they were always overrepresented, but it was somewhere like double. But if you were to follow that from the 1920s up till the 1990s, what you'd find, particularly in the last 15 years, is this dramatic upsurge of black males going into our system. Because all, the percentage of African Americans in the general population has not changed from 1920 to 1990. It was about 11% in the 20s, it's about 12% now. So there's no uh, significant change. Yet the percentage going into the system, into the correctional system, has just in a kind of an inexorable fashion, year by year, has crept up. And then with the drug war, there was this fantastic surge. And it was done in the face of falling crime. I mean, that's what's most interesting about this. If you were to go back 20 years, crime peaked in this country in 1972. Uh, yet if you were to look at the percentage of blacks going into our system, it, it was creeping up year by year. And I, and I think that the rhetoric has gotten more vicious and the handling more harsh, almost in proportion to the percentage of blacks we knew were going into the system. So that it's, it's, uh, we talk at two levels in this country. When people say we have to get tough on law and order, we have to lock more people up to stem crime, what they mean is we need to lock more black men up. No one says that, but that's what they mean because that's in fact what we're doing. Uh, that's what's happening. Uh, as I say, uh, drug arrests in this country, it's, it's been a, uh, an assault on the black community. I mean, all the statistics available from the National Institute of Drug Abuse suggest that drug usage by various ethnic and racial groups in the country is roughly equivalent to their representation in the country. Most of the drug usage is of, of cocaine, for example, is of white people, about 70, 75 percent. There's no indication there's greater drug usage in the black community. It's somewhere in the area, maybe as high as 15 percent for 12 percent of the population. Yet if you were to look at arrests, you'll find that uh, in New York City, for example, 92 percent of the drug arrests in 1990 were of blacks and Hispanics. In Columbus, Ohio, 90 percent. In Jacksonville, Florida, over 90 percent. So that it's been focused very much on that group. There are a lot of reasons for that, because they're poor people, because the dealing tends to be done outside in the open, because it makes great TV. You can alert the cameras, and they can come in, and, uh, and most, I shouldn't say most, but a large percentage of our law enforcement are on the make politically at all times, particularly sheriffs that are lo you know, locally elected, uh, and they, they love to get on the evening news, so they alert the, t the local news cameras, and they follow them around. They would never dare do this in the white community. The drug war has made very explicit the racism that has always driven the criminal justice system in this, in this country. 
it's within the lifetime of a large number of people, you know, that we were still lynching people here. But not only that, most of the lynching was overlooked by the law enforcement establishment. I don't think uh, it takes any stretch of the imagination to suggest that at least at some archetypal level or some unconscious level, those attitudes are still very much there. It is because of this element of racism that Miller fears that the current American panic about crime may not have the self-limiting character of previous moral panics. Sociologist Kai Erickson observed years ago that the Salem witch trials ended when influential members of the community began to be accused. The Red Scare of the 50s collapsed when its accusations became embarrassing to established authorities. But in this case, American society has embodied its worst fears in a racially and geographically distinct group, and then surrounded this group with institutions that stimulate and reinforce its worst elements. This will tend, Miller fears, to make the resulting criminal culture self-perpetuating rather than self-limiting. This is the same fear that Norwegian criminologist Nils Christie expressed in a recent book called Crime Control as Industry, a book which bore as its ominous subtitle the question, Towards Gulags, Western Style? In this book, Christie noted that crime control is an industry and as such creates jobs, launches political careers, provides a steady supply of public enemies, and stimulates investments in the evolving technologies of control, surveillance, and incarceration. Might the U.S., he wondered, end up with a large, dehumanized population whose social function, in effect, is to provide the raw material for this industry? Jerry Miller has the same question. For the first time in our history, the absolute majority of people in our, in our prisons nationally now are either black or Hispanic. It's a little over 50% black and another 15% Hispanic. And that makes it quite different in terms of whether there's much hope for change, because I think there's very little support within the majority white community to undo harsh handling of, of young black men. And so that I think it will tend to build on itself. And I think Nielsen's Christie is quite correct that uh, by the end of this century, we will see a large percentage, if not the absolute majority, of younger black men uh, in gulags or in prisons or camps. They will be called helpful. They'll call them boot camps. They'll call them training centers. You know, there was a move here right before the uh, Gulf War to start turning over military bases as, uh, as correctional facilities. These would be ideal for camps, and that was talked about. But then the war came along, and they, it was, no one said much more about it. But it was a, a very large thing. A lot of people in the, in the Bush administration and in the Justice Department were talking a great deal about it. I think that will return again. And uh, I don't think that we'll lower the percentage of blacks going into the system. Our estimates now, and I think they're soundly based on some pretty good research, are that about 80% of young black men will be arrested and jailed at least once before they reach age 35. And uh, lifetime risk of arrest is, is going to be well over 90%. Now, a lot of those arrests won't go anywhere, but they will go into the system at least briefly. And then a certain percentage will come back and, and be totally alienated uh, from the society as, as they are now.
Jerry Miller began his career in the 1950s as a psychiatric social worker. He was influenced by psychoanalysis in the revised version prevalent in the U.S. at mid-century and by a social work tradition that he believed to be humane, non-judgmental, and respectful of the confidence of clients. In the years since, he has witnessed what he calls a sea change in the ethics of professional helpers. And much of the reason for this change, he believes, is the spreading influence of crime control as the paradigm of social work. What was formerly kept pretty much in the criminal justice arena has now crept out to engulf a whole wide variety of other so-called helping services. So that, uh, for example, the child protective services, social services, uh, if you go to the average courtroom and watch a case being presented, if there are any charges or criminal charges toward anyone in the family, you will find the child protective worker sitting with the prosecution, feeding information that, in fact, uh, they, they view themselves very much as avenging angels. Whereas originally probation, for example, invented by John Augustus, a Boston shoemaker who literally went to court every day and, and argued with the court to be able to take some home so that he could help them find jobs, and, and a very much an advocacy-oriented person, that, that's what probation was all about, alternatives to incarceration. Now you find probation an arm of law enforcement probation uh, uh, officers uh, in this country now routinely view themselves or their role as that of catching people and ensuring they are locked up. The idea of offering help is almost a contradiction. Uh, some may try to be, uh, to be counselors to some degree, but it really doesn't work because they have, uh, uh, for the most part, uh, such a need to report things, to look for problems, to at, at best to preach, but at worst to reincarcerate. So uh, you have a, uh, an odd situation in this country now where a substantial percentage of people in prison are not there for having committed a crime in and of itself, but they are there for having been in technical violation of the conditions of their probation. They were originally on probation, uh, and they ticked off the probation officer. They didn't do anything sufficient to warrant a new trial or a new charge. But it was something like not keeping appointments, uh, getting drunk, uh, moving without permission, marrying without permission, showing up with, uh, with a, a positive urine screen, something like that. In the old days, a probation officer would have worked with that person to try to put things back together, and they would have viewed it as their role to try to keep that person functioning in the community and with the family. It's precisely the opposite now uh, in this country. I don't think that's true, incidentally, in Canada to the degree it is here. It certainly isn't in Great Britain. I've, I've been over there a number of times in the last years, and the probation department over there, much to their credit, are still considered a bunch of bleeding hearts uh, that try to keep people out. Uh, but that's certainly not the case here, and, and I fear that uh, the virus that's infected American society will spread. Is this wider than just probation, too? Oh, I think so. I, I think you see it... Uh, across the board. Uh, for example, uh, psychiatry, although in the press very often they're portrayed as uh, individuals who try to excuse people for their responsibility for crimes or, or they, are, uh, they are permissive, they are this, they are that. That was probably too, true to a degree 30 years ago uh, when I started in this field. That is not true anymore. 
uh, we see more often than not psychiatrists uh, going in and talking like prosecutors and policemen. Uh, the treatment programs, so-called, many of them, if you were to uh, take some of these uh, self-help uh, drug programs and others and, and look at them as little societies, what they are are little fascist societies. They are nothing that you would want to have in a democratic society and there's nothing there, you wouldn't want to run a country that way where blind obedience, you do not question anything. They are forms of, uh, they are psychological forms of aggravated assault, I guess is what I, how I characterize them. But it's become a very judgmental field. I think it's infected uh, school counseling a lot of the high schools in this country, the new ones, when you look at them, they're indistinguishable from a correctional institution in terms of how they look and how they're built. And you go up and down hallways, as I did this past week, I've been seeing a young man here who's graduating, and I went over, he was going to give a class and ask if I'd come speak to his class. And, you know, you're stopped every hundred yards by someone with a beeper asking where you're going and what's happening and, and, and all of this, the armamentaria of law enforcement that has been brought in. Now the rationale is that it's to stem violence, but in fact I, I think it uh, contributes to a mood and to a self-concept that, that feeds the violence. For Jerry Miller, it is an axiom that social work professions and law enforcement must be strictly separated. The principle involved was spelled out in an essay written in 1917 by the great American social psychologist George Herbert Mead. The essay is called The Psychology of Punitive Justice, and Miller cites it frequently in his writings. It is quite impossible psychologically, Meade wrote, to hate the sin and love the sinner. But, he went on, societies often delude themselves on this point, imagining that the same hand that punishes can also reinstate the offender in the community. This is manifestly wrong, Meade says. Understanding and reconciliation have completely different roots than catching and punishing. And therefore, he concludes, control of crime through the hostile procedure of law and control through comprehension of social and psychological conditions cannot be combined. These two properly autonomous functions, Miller believes, have now collapsed into a maniacally single-minded emphasis on punishment and control. He thinks that one of the reasons this has happened is the interplay between the institutions of criminal justice and the mass media. Criminal justice necessarily works on binary, good-bad, innocent-guilty kinds of logic. Mass media have an insatiable craving for the dramatically obvious. The fit is a natural one. But Miller also blames academic sociology and its subspecialty, criminology. His own models came from what he calls the street-pounding school of sociology. Writers like Clifford Shaw of Chicago, who in the 20s and 30s studied what he called delinquent careers through detailed biography. Sociology and criminology today, Miller feels, often try to be hard mathematical sciences, with the result that narrative sense has tended to wash out of them. He finds welcome support for this view in a book called Acts of Meaning, published in 1990, by psychologist Jerome Bruner. He says the same thing, that this loss of a sense of narrative has not only, uh, not only is it a personal loss, uh, it is a loss in terms of 
of the stuff of science, uh, that in fact what we're getting now are, are artifacts, uh, what we're getting from the current methodology. Uh, we are not getting a, a sense of, of movement, of texture, of career in people's lives, and above all, uh, there's no sense of meaning to anything. It's, it's all, uh, at, at best it's a behaviorist approach, at worst it's a very manipulative, uh, bottom-line oriented type sociology. It allows you to to pull yourself back from the people you are studying and to detach yourself from their lives and therefore be very manipulative, very judgmental. There's a marvelous old saying uh, from uh, George Mead, a great uh, social psychologist uh, the early part of this century, who said that to the degree that uh, you know someone, uh, to that degree you can't be punitive. And so what we have now in the area of criminal justice particularly is a system designed to ensure that we remain ignorant of people. It's designed to ensure that we don't know them too well because then the, the categories break down very quickly. I testify a lot in court hearings, particularly in capital punishment cases, and uh, it's always amazing to me. Uh, uh, the prosecution in these cases dances about the room trying to keep you from saying things that are real or that are, are honest or truthful for fear the jury will be drained of, uh, of a need to punish. And so that it's an exercise in, in, in trying to keep things in very neat categories and trying in a sense to avoid uh, uh, dealing with reality which is much more complex than the criminal justice system allows. Prisons, to Jerry Miller, are as much a cause as a consequence of crime. And one of the focuses of his work has always been on keeping as many offenders as possible out of them. In the 1970s, he was involved in major deinstitutionalizations in Massachusetts and Pennsylvania. And since then, he has pioneered something called alternative sentencing to help keep people out. The idea began to take shape in 1974, when he was a special assistant to the governor of Pennsylvania for community-based programs. Pennsylvania law then allowed juvenile judges to sentence youthful offenders who displeased them to adult prisons. In one, the Camp Hill prison, there were 392 such kids, one of them a boy who was there because his parents had found a marijuana cigarette in his athletic jacket and reported him. He had been raped in the prison and then hanged himself. The resulting scandal allowed Miller to convince the governor to get all of them out. For each of the kids we moved out, we prepared an individualized plan. Uh, he needs uh, to live in this X type of setting, he needs this amount of supervision, he needs this amount of education, etc., etc. And then we would go to the sentencing judge and we would say, look, if we could put all this together, would you let him out of prison? to go into this. And most of the judges were willing at that point because nothing like this had ever been presented to them before. And so we kind of took that model and made it our model here. Uh, it's something, again, that happened by accident or by happenstance. Uh, when we first came down here uh, and started this organization, it came down from Harrisburg, 
uh, we really were into doing uh, consulting with state government around deinstitutionalization strategies and budget strategies and what have you. And along the way, a youngster, uh, he, was, he just turned 18, young man, who was a friend of someone on the staff back in Harrisburg, got in trouble. And his mother called and said, can you do anything? Uh, for my son, and uh, he had uh, he'd been a pain to her. He had uh, a kid who was kind of lazy and didn't get a job, and she sought advice from a local police chief who was a friend of hers, and he said, well, have him arrested for trespassing, <laughs> right, which is bizarre. So this kid's asleep in his bedroom. <laughs> One morning, a policeman comes in at about 5 and arrests him and takes him off to jail. Well, while he's in the jail, he's only there three or four days, and, he, and then they send him home. Uh, while he's there, he meets a federal prisoner who's on a detainer or something in transport who's very sophisticated in crime. Anyway, the kid goes home, and a couple weeks later, this guy shows up at the front door uh, that he met in the jail and said, let's go out for an evening. Well, the evening amounted to their breaking into a house, uh, stealing a bunch of guns, wrecking a car, uh, this, uh, and this, this federal inmate runs off with this kid's girlfriend in someone else's car to New York and whatever, and the kid is left drunk by the side of the road where he is then arrested and charged in a rural county with all these horrendous crimes and facing a fair amount of time. Uh, and, that, and then the mother called, said, can you do anything? And uh, so I talked with Herb about it, and we said, well, why don't we do what we did with the Camp Hill kids? Neither one of us had ever been in an adult court at that point. I'd always been in the juvenile area. So we put together a little package. We would have him come down here, work for us. We would have him uh, in some kind of therapy. Uh, we would uh, file regular reports with the court. We would make sure he wasn't drinking and went to AA meetings. And we did a whole little plan and went up there and uh, presented it. It's a rather conservative court. And the judge went with it, sent him, didn't send him to jail, sent him right down here. Well, while we were sitting there, there I remember very vividly, there were 17 people sentenced that, that, mo that morning and afternoon in that court. And what you saw is a parade of tragedy. I mean, you'd see, a, uh, they'd come in for sentencing, they'd all been found guilty a couple weeks before, and, and they were being sent off to the county jail or the state prison willy-nilly. Now and then a mother would come and beg if, if, you know, can he come home or he's a good boy or whatever. And, uh, but our case was one of the heaviest or more serious ones of the day, yet the judge let him come with us. And it wasn't, didn't have to do with any influence. I didn't know the judge. I don't think he knew me. And we, riding back, we said, you know, if we had been there and done little plans for each of these 17 people, probably 15 of them wouldn't have been sent anywhere. So we said, let's try that and see what happens. So we looked through the newspapers, literally down here, for a, a case that would be difficult and have some symbolic value. And the first case was of a kid in a drunk driving, ostensibly drunk driving incident up at Fort Meade in Maryland, driving a pickup truck with 10 friends in the back, hit a tree, all 10 were killed uh, going around a corner. 10 deaths, one survivor, the driver, 17-year-old boy. And uh, it, it wasn't drunk driving. They'd been to a party. They'd had a little marijuana, but it was, a, it was a very dangerous curve, and it turns out there'd been a lot of accidents on this particular curve at night in, in this place. And we prepared an alternative plan, and uh, the plan involved his losing his driver's license, I, literally, as I recall, for life. I don't think he'll ever get it back that he be, have alcohol uh, treatment if he needs it. it. He didn't need it, but we got him in a program anyway. That he would do three years 
of uh, 20 hours or 30 hours a week. It was virtually all his leisure time, evenings and weekends, of unpaid community service, working with a shock trauma unit, handling horrible accident cases, or learning about that, that he'd maintain a full-time job, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, he was so traumatized by it when we would interview him in, you know, in our other offices, you couldn't mention the accident. He'd faint. You know, he'd, you. He would just fall right on the floor. You couldn't talk about it with him. But anyway, we went, and, and we, obviously some of the parents wanted him sent away forever. I mean, they never wanted to, they wanted him killed. Uh, but uh, a colonel, an army colonel and his wife, who lost their only two children in this accident, a teenage boy and a girl, came forward and said they didn't see any reason to destroy this other kid behind their tragedy. And so we got about them and we got two or three others of the surviving families to support our plan when we went to court, which they did, came in and testified for it. And uh, the judge went with it. The kid, incidentally, eventually went on to become a medical technician. So we did that. We were pleased with that. Then we looked around for a second case, and it was three kids who burnt down a high school, $6 million arson. And uh, again, we, what we did in these cases, we just called the lawyer and said, we'd be willing to do this free as just a service if you would like it. And of course they jumped at it and we did, did it for them and, and, and similarly it worked out. Uh, we, we designed the community service and they each had to, it was an onerous thing, they each had to pay uh, 10000 over the next 10 years each out of their own earnings, which they did. And then from there we went into doing other cases. We got a small grant from the Clark Foundation, did regular street crime cases. And we've done now 10, 12,000 such alternative sentences around the country. And then people started to pick it up. When it, we were the first to do it in the nation. I mean, when we would go into court, a lot of times the judge would just laugh at us, the prosecutor, who are these people? What is this all about? I mean, it was so bizarre that you would come in and propose something like this when you're supposed to either go on probation or to jail. You don't propose all these other things. And we would give written plans that would be pages long with documentation and letters and what have you. If it were done routinely, incidentally, uh, the prison populations nationally would be cut at least by a third uh, because uh, sentencing is just done very, very poorly. That's because for the most part it's done by lawyers they're, and they're only interested in whether you're guilty or innocent or whether they can find a technicality to win on appeal. They're very poor at sentencing. They don't like to deal with the guilty client. They're like doctors with a terminal patient. And so that that part of the criminal justice procedure, which to the individual is the most important, like how many years am I going to go away, it's almost malpractice what you see happening. It, it's handled in a very offhanded fashion, very little thought gone into it, et cetera, et cetera. And I think we have focused attention on that aspect so that you do find lawyers doing a better job or bringing in people to do that. Of course, then what you see in response to that are the mandatory sentences where you can't consider all this. You just, if you do the crime, you do the time, which is just like the meat axe approach to sentencing. Mandatory sentencing is, in effect, the complete opposite of the approach Jerry Miller has been able to take in local and state courts where judges retain discretionary powers. It was introduced in 1984 when the American Congress passed the Sentencing Reform Act. The act mandated the creation of a federal sentencing commission which in turn created detailed tables specifying the precise degree of punishment to be meted out for each crime. The reform was sponsored by a curious coalition of conservatives who felt that judges were too lenient and liberals who felt that they were too prejudiced. 
By the time the law was passed, the conservative agenda was in the ascendant, and as a result, the sentencing guidelines have made sentencing more harsh as well as more complicated. The federal sentencing guidelines have gotten so bizarre and so complicated that you have to be a Talmudic uh, scholar uh, to know how to fashion a sentence. It, it isn't that you can propose alternatives, it's that you can say to the lawyer, well, if you, if you plead him to more than one ounce of this or three ounces of that, the years go up accordingly, and if you do this, or if he's walking that way or getting this way out of his car, it'll go up that way, uh, or they'll bring this charge. So that it becomes an extremely, comp there are books, volumes of things. You, you, I, I have a picture of a medieval monk <laughs> with some kind of a thing in a room going over and looking for each jot and tittle, and that's where we are in federal sentencing. It is, it is comical if it weren't so tragic. And of course the effect has been that the that it still is more discriminatory than it was under the old system. There have been a number of studies that have found under the federal guidelines now uh, there's more racial discrimination than there was when judges had total leeway. And that is because all the power to make these decisions, it's still there. You can still uh, uh, individualize, but it's all been passed to the prosecutor. He decides what the charge will be. So he will overcharge in order to get uh, confession or in order to get an, uh, information on other people. And if the guy cooperates to this level or that level, he may alter this charge or that charge. And all the wheeling and dealing now and all the individual considerations being done by politicians who are prosecuted. Because in this country, most federal prosecutors are politicians. They got appointed because of political connections, and a large percentage of them plan to run for office, like Rudolph Giuliani in New York. I, I noticed when Janet Reno, the new attorney general, announced they were firing all the federal prosecutors nationally when she came in. They were going to replace them because they were political appointments. Uh, a large proportion of them, the two of them here in Virginia, immediately announced that they might run for governor. <laughs> I mean, this is what we're talking about. It has nothing to do with... You wish we had, like, the crown prosecutor system in England where they're appointed the way judges are and they don't have to have another agenda. But here it's so politicized. That's why they routinely stand on the courthouse steps and yak away about law and order and what needs to be done. It has very little to do with justice. Mandatory sentencing has destroyed the element that Miller thinks should be most prominent in court proceedings, what he called before the narrative element. Judicial discretion can certainly be abused, but it does allow sentencing to vary with circumstances, and that in turn requires what to Miller is most important, that the social and psychological dimensions of a case should come to light. At least that was a human element. And uh, it came with all the problems uh, that you bring with a human being to it, and all the biases and all the issues. But there's the, what it's been replaced with has, has been horrendous, uh, where there's no possibility of human consideration. It, they've just ruled it out. And it has the effect of taking the attention of the larger society away from the really important issues. Uh, for, uh, it, it always seemed to me that... Uh, the task of informed people in this field is to be like messengers to the larger society uh, so that uh, about what's happening and so that I think it's, it's, it is great if you can bring into a courtroom at the time of sentencing a person's life history and lay it out. I think it's important that everybody know that murderers don't drop out of the sky and go off and kill someone because they are possessed by the devil or they were born that way. Uh, it's very important that, that all of this be discussed in grand detail, 
the sentencing guidelines don't allow that. They, you are not allowed to bring that information in. If you are, it's sealed and no one says anything about it. And it, it misleads the public into thinking there is, in fact, such a thing as a criminal who is defined by that act. That's their whole identity and definition. I've never known such a person, and I've known a lot of people who've done horrendous things and deserve that kind of label, but they are also uh, have other attributes. And, and they didn't fall out of the sky. They came out of a particular experience. And you need a system that takes that into account. And the judicial system still did that to some degree in a very lumbering, very often unfair, unfair way. But if there's anything clear in the research now, it's that the sentencing guidelines across the country have made matters much worse for everybody. And there's more bias, more discrimination. It's just that it's all now handled by politicians. We've been in courts where the judge will cry at sentencing, saying, I'm forced to put this sentence into place, and it makes no sense to me. This has happened a number of times. In fact, a number of federal judges within the last six months have refused to take drug cases. They refuse to hear them now, the older judges, because they said it is so unfair, and they will no longer sit on the bench and send some 18-year-old off for 30 years for X, Y, Z. Uh, particularly when he's in that position because of an attitude of the prosecutor or because he's on the make locally politically and wants to make this an example. Uh, there are a number of very respected judges uh, that have spoken up on it, which is very unusual because judges, federal judges tend not to say a great deal. Despite this backlash against certain aspects of mandatory sentencing, Miller thinks that the general trend in American justice is running strongly in the direction he described earlier in the program. More police, more prisons, and more simplistic thinking. Unless the political climate changes dramatically in the next few years, he believes that this can only lead to the same destination predicted by Nils Christie in his Crime Control as Industry, a society of extreme violence with a permanent criminalized underclass whose only culture is the prison and whose only social standing is as fodder for the crime control industry. But in the meantime, Miller goes on, as he has in the past, rescuing whomever he can. I was trained in a Catholic tradition, and, and, and uh, St. Thomas Aquinas uh, at one point, and it was certainly true of the so-called cardinal sins of the medieval era, that the worst is uh, the sin of despair, <laughs> of giving up hope, because that closes off the possibility one will uh, can do better. And I think that's what I uh, struggle with as I watch uh, this country go down the tubes, because it it is uh, it gets more wearing as time goes by, and you you then try to find a niche of your own uh, out of which, and and you try to surround yourself with people that at least sound reasonable to you in what seems to me at this point to be a very insane uh, world and getting more so. And, uh, and uh, so I want to maintain some hope, so I wouldn't want to uh, sound totally uh, despairing about it. But I'm not, uh, I'm not really all that hopeful, uh, at least for the immediate future. You, you take for granted that uh, humanity will eventually out and things will, uh, will change for the better. But it's been a horrific uh, decade in criminal justice, and uh, it's now got a momentum of its own that is so destructive that there's virtually no articulate response among that uh, on that side of the political spectrum that you would hope would say something. They're, they either stand mute or they join the crowd. And, I, and that has ominous implications 
and uh, I think I know Canada fairly well, and I th and I sh there's much more hope there. I think uh, is if they can uh, fend off the influence of the states uh, with reference to this sort of uh, of craziness. But I uh, there's a. Uh, favorite uh, writer of mine, a Spanish uh, philosopher by the name of Miguel de Unamuno, who says very, very briefly that, uh, that there's uh, something to be gained in, in the battle, even if one loses it, uh, that, uh, that, uh, that there's something hopefully ennobling about the, the struggle. And I guess that's uh, what keeps me going as long as I uh, uh, have a little vigor left in me. On Ideas, the fifth program in our series, Beyond Institutions, by David Cayley. Dr. Jerome Miller, who was featured in tonight's program, is the author of Last One Over the Wall, The Massachusetts Experiment in Closing Reform Schools, published by The Ohio State University Press. A new book by Jerome Miller called Search and Destroy, African-American Males and the Criminal Justice System, is forthcoming from Cambridge University Press. David Cayley's six-part series concludes tomorrow with a program based on Norwegian sociologist Nils Christie's book, Beyond Loneliness and Institutions. Technical production was by Lorne Tulk, production assistants Liz Nodge and Gail Brownell. To order a printed transcript of tonight's program or the entire six-part series, Call Radio Works at this toll-free number, 1-800-363-1530. That's 1-800-363-1530. And we appreciate receiving comments on our programs. Write to us at Ideas, Box 500, Station A, Toronto, M5W1E6. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht, and I'm Lister Sintler. Tonight on Between the Covers, part four of The Priest's Boy by Clive Doucette. That's on CBC Radio following the 10 o'clock news. <laughs>